Greetings, my fellow historians. I'm Aziz, with me is Ashea, and this is Valar Reredus, where we look for the foreshadowing we missed, new depth in the world building, a better understanding of the plot lines, greater familiarity with the characters, and more fun than you can fit in all seven hills. Maybe I should say, and more puns than you can fit in all seven hills. We'll see how the puns go today. But hey, it's the beginning of A Clash of Kings. We've finished A Game of Thrones, and it's time to begin book two. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. As we did with the Game of Thrones, we'll start off with a little bit of meta, a little bit of chapter counting and looking at what the book has in store for us from a logistical perspective. This Reread will be uh, six a week instead of seven. And the reason for that is that, well, it's about the same length. Six A Clash of Kings chapters on average is equal to seven A Game of Thrones chapters because the average A Clash of Kings chapter is, well, I don't have it in my notes. I wrote it down during A Game of Thrones. I think it's about two and a half pages longer. So six extra would be, you know, about one extra chapter. So there you go. There's the math on that. Now, there's, of course, a different set of characters this time. It's not hugely different. Instead of Ned, we have Theon and Davos. But Ned had 15 chapters, and Theon and Davos do not have 15 chapters. This time, Tyrion has 15 chapters. A lot of those, of course, are his intriguing around King's Landing chapters, and then a series of Battle of Blackwater chapters. That also defines a good part of Sansa's arc. She's got eight chapters, which is up from six, but they're very spread out. She's got a couple early on, and then a large gap without one, and then another large gap, and then the Battle of Blackwater, where she features prominently with several chapters uh, alternating with Tyrion's. We also have 10 Arya chapters, which is double her arc in A Game of Thrones. She had five, and now she has 10. Catelyn goes from 11 chapters down to seven. Um, Davos gets three. Uh, Theon gets six. Now, Theon's are fairly lengthy, though, even though he has six. And that's a lesson implied there as well. Just because a number of chapters might be small doesn't mean the chapters aren't long. You can do a lot in one chapter because it could be a long chapter. Likewise, some chapters can be short. And of course, short chapters can do a lot. Just because it's short chapter doesn't mean there's not much happening. Bran has seven chapters, which is exactly the same as A Game of Thrones. John has eight, which is one less than he had in uh, A Game of Thrones. And that's it. Those are our POVs. Our, the schedule is posted. If you want to see which chapters we're doing when, like I said, we're only doing three to start off this week to get things balanced. Six a week doesn't divide evenly into the number of chapters in The Clash of Kings, which there are 70. And it works out pretty well because this prologue is huge. The prologue is the second longest chapter in all of A Song of Ice and Fire, and it's roughly four times longer than the Arya chapter that comes right after it. So we'll be spending a lot of time tackling that one. 
So again, once again, the schedule is posted on Patreon. It's posted on Facebook. It's posted on Flick. And so there's a lot of ways you can come check it out and see what the schedule is going to entail. It's a much smoother schedule this time than it was for Game of Thrones. We had a lot of travel planned for conventions and things like that. And then I had a death in the family that uh, made that travel schedule even more hectic. Well, I can't predict whether the latter will happen again, but we don't have any, uh, well, we only have one trip planned and it's a short one. It will only, in fact, it won't even skip that weekend. So we're going to be smooth sailing for Clash of Kings as, as far as it looks anyway. So that should be really nice. Well, that weekend we're recording on Monday exactly. instead of Sunday. That's right. There are two weeks currently scheduled where we're going to record on Monday instead of Sunday. But that is uh, preferable to skipping a week, I think. We'll, we'll be staying on schedule a little better this time. And so if you want to help out the show, you can join us on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Westeros history or history of Westeros. And you can browse quite a lot of of our features there. We've got lots of uh, things that we give back to y'all for pledging to support us. That includes bonus episodes. That's always the most popular thing. We have two episodes that are called Where Are They Now? regarding where characters introduced early on are at the at currently in the series, meaning uh, during the, the Winds of Winter chapters. We also have started putting together compilations of all the chapter arcs. Right now, we have all the Ned chapters available for patrons. Ned 1 through 8 is one episode, and Ned 9 through 15 is another. So if you want to re-listen to Valar reread us, either now or, say, when The Winds of Winter is announced, I figure that's when a lot of people are going to do a reread, or at least a re-listen to these podcasts once The Winds of Winter is announced. So you can do that. And if you might want to re-listen in a different way, you might want to not do the order of the chapters. You might want to do POV by POV. So that's what we're building for you over on Patreon. So one thing that's really neat about A Clash of Kings as a whole is that it has the comet. And the comet represents the rise of magic. Whether or not the comet is the reason for the return of magic or a symbol of it, it doesn't really matter as far as this point goes, which is that A Clash of Kings really amps up the magic that's going on in the story. We have more dreams. We have the introduction of skin changing. We have mysteries from the East, from Daenerys' chapters as she visits Karth and things like that. We have the House of the Undying. And of course, we have the rise of R'hllor, which features prominently in this first chapter, the prologue. The comet is in everyone's first chapter, except Davos, where instead we get the tale of Azor Ahai and the burning of the seven. So there's still some comedy type stuff in there, but Davos has already dealt with the comet a bit because he appears in Crescent's chapter where they talk about it there. So let's get going. The prologue. First of all, thanks for everyone who's joined us live today. I see a lot of people shouting for Stannis in the chat. <laughs> of course, that's appropriate. I've even got a fiery heart shirt. Uh, thanks to the History of Westeros mods for this one. And to Ed Shear, the artist. That's right. Of course. How could I forget? Ed Shear is the one who actually made this design. Ed has also done some of our Dragon Rider art, uh, particularly the Hatchlings. So this one is called The Gang Meets Stannis' Crew, a.k.a. the one where Melisandre drinks poison. We are continuing with our fun, goofy friends slash It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia style titles. We usually read them out at the beginning, but there's only three this time, so we didn't go through the whole list. But that tradition is continuing. Like I said, it's the second longest chapter in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. The longest is Elaine 2 slash Sansa 3, whatever you want to call 
her final A Feast for Crows chapter. It's uh, a beefy, excellent chapter that's even longer than this one. A full three pages longer, in fact. So not just a little bit longer. This could be called the one with lots of ominous foreshadowing. There's Dragon Dreams. There's Melisandre. There's Patchface. And of course, the very first line of the chapter, quote, The comet's tail spread across the dawn, a red slash that led above the crags of Dragonstone like a wound in the pink and purple sky. Even the location is a place of doom. Doom, capital D, you could say. The place the Targaryens fled in advance of the doom. It's a volcanic island, the place of Daenerys' birth. It's carved with grotesque stone figures. It's a place of storms and darkness. It's isolated, which is kind of fitting because Crescent is an extremely tragic figure. He's lonely. He thinks a lot on what he's lost to age, both physically and mentally. He thinks of his shame in regards to Shireen and Stannis and some other characters. He feels left out. He feels forgotten. He sees his replacement taking on more and more of his tasks. But he likes Maester Pylos and respects him, which makes Crescent even more likable himself and thus even more tragic. He curses himself for being superstitious. That's too bad because he's not wrong to fear what the comet portends. Or, well, maybe he is because he's not going to be around to see any of that. But he has lived a life of service and he wants his death to have meaning, I would presume. In fact, well, I don't need to presume. He definitely wanted his death to have meaning. Many of these things remind me of Maester Eamon. The loss of faculties, feeling shame over children, even association with the comet. Maester Eamon and Rhaegar discussed the comet. Well, the previous comet. And of course, this association with the Targaryen home castle. This fits a bit of a pattern George R. R. Martin gives us with the prologues, where he gives us an advanced look at a type of character or situation, or plot device, like, like here, for Eamon. Waymar Rice, kind of a bit for Jon Snow. Pate gives us an advanced look at the Citadel for Sam. Now, Pate isn't a whole lot like Sam, but you get the point. He's introducing that location for Sam. Varamir is probably advanced insight into skin changing as we prepare for more scenes of Jon, plus Arya and Bran doing that. Chet from A Storm of Swords might be the exception. I couldn't think of a good thing that he sets up character-wise other than helping introduce the, uh, the other's attack on the camp, which isn't really that, doesn't really fit into the same category I'm referring to here. Anyway, a fun question is, who was the maester of Dragonstone before Crescent? His POV reveals he came here with Stannis, quote, some 12 years past. He was at Storm's End before. So, for example, he would have known Donald Noy. That's not mentioned, but we can know that. Crescent's introduction is paired with a huge number of other important characters. It's no wonder this chapter is so long because it introduces so many characters. Stannis, Selyse and Axel Florent, Melisandre, Davos, Shireen, Patchface, Pylos, Salador San, House Valarian, Celtigar, and Bar Eamon, and Sunglass. Some of these only appear and don't really get a proper introduction, that happens a bit later, particularly in Davos's chapters. And of course, we're also introduced to the amazing and fun and spooky and epic location of Dragonstone. Quote, Dragonstone was grim beyond a doubt, a lonely citadel in the wet waste, surrounded by storm and salt, with the smoking shadow of the mountain at its back. Now, that's an introduction to the place filled with very specific language. George chose his words carefully, I think. 
We have salt and smoking shadow. That's very Azor Ahai-ish language. And storms for Stormborn. Storms are a regular feature on Dragonstone and in the place Crescent spent presumably many years, which is, of course, the Stormlands. The Targaryen fleet was smashed during the storm when Daenerys was born. And a storm killed Lord and Lady Baratheon. So storms are a big part of Crescent's past and where he lives. A couple of cool things about Dragonstone. There's mentions of wyverns or wyvern, pretending on, uh, depending on how you prefer to pronounce it. They're native to Sothorios, as far as we know. We did a whole episode on Gagasos where we talked about the wyverns quite a bit. It's another Patreon-only episode, yet another episode that uh, makes up our list of Patreon bonus episodes. There's quite a few now. I don't even know how many there are. I've lost count. And, of course, there's also mention of some other cool creatures like gargoyles and hellhounds. Now, the hellhound, I'm not really sure what a hellhound is in A Song of Ice and Fire. They're, They're mentioned in a few other places, for example... Amongst the story of Simeon Star Eyes. Uh, so, but we don't know what that is, whether that's supposedly just a mythical creature from a song of ice and fire, you know, just a stylized dog of fire. <laughs> it kind of sounds like Sandor. But it's the opposite uh, of a dire wolf. Yeah, <laughs> it's a dire wolf. It's a it's a tire wolf. And yeah, that's kind of cool. And then gargoyles, of course, are mentioned a lot in association with Tyrion. He is referred to as a gargoyle really quite a few times. And it's just picturing Dragonstone with these things all over it. It really, I think the TV show did a decent job of, of picking a castle that looks pretty epic and, and uh, you know, old like Dragonstone, which isn't super old, but, you know, old enough. But of course, they couldn't really do this. They couldn't put gargoyles and weverns and hellhounds all over it. And so you got to leave a little bit of room in your imagination for, for what the book version looks like as compared to the show. Here's a quote from Maester Cresson. Here we are. He wondered if his gargoyles had ever seen its like. They had been here so much longer than he had and would still be here long after he was gone. If stone tongues could speak. So he's referring to the comet, wondering if the gargoyles had ever seen its like. Now, of course, as we know, there was a comet during Rhaegar's time, the one we just mentioned that Aemon mentioned. That wasn't that long ago. So you got to wonder if Crescent doesn't consider that comet nearly as as important as this one, or if he's just wondering, you know, what other comets the, the gargoyles have seen. But of course, the mention of stone tongues speaking, that makes us think of other things like Lady Stoneheart and possibly the quiet lion theory. Speaking of gargoyles, right? The, uh, that theory posits that Tyrion will lose the ability to speak because he got grayscale by a drinking, you know, river water that got the same river water that got Connington's hand grayscale. Now I think it's probably too late for him to develop grayscale from that. It's been many chapters have passed much time has passed since he was in the water, but I think the, Quiet lion theory has merit for other reasons. Maybe not a stone tongue thing, but the, the, the idea that he could lose his tongue, I think that's still possible. Mm-hmm. I don't want it to happen, to be clear, but it could. It could. Mm-hmm. Can I say, we were talking about Dragonstone and what it looked like, and you were talking about the show. It's one of my big disappointments is some of the castles, how they depicted them. Dragonstone yep. was not a big dragon. No, it was not. And I really wanted it. At least it had the dragons flying around it, which looked cool. But yeah. you're right. It didn't have the carvings or anything. It didn't yeah. look dragony at all. It just looked like 
Like as a castle, it looked cool, but as Dragonstone, it was like yeah. it was the same thing as as Casterly Rock. They weren't they, they didn't embody that distinct distinct uh, imagery. I agree, definitely agree. Speaking of distinct imagery, we get a different version of this in the show. It's the painted table. Let's get a description. Quote. The painted table was more than 50 feet long, perhaps half that wide at its widest point, but less than four feet across at its narrowest. Aegon's carpenters had shaped it after the land of Westeros, sawing out each bay and peninsula until the table nowhere ran straight. On its surface, darkened by near 300 years of varnish, were painted the seven kingdoms as they had been in Aegon's day, rivers and mountains, castles and cities, lakes and forests. There was a single chair in the room, carefully positioned in the precise place that Dragonstone occupied off the coast of Westeros and raised up to give a good view of the tabletop. So that's one of the main differences right there, a seat where Dragonstone is. That's a a big difference from TV. Now, TV painted table looked awesome. I'm not complaining. But it is different, It's a, but not hugely different. I think this chair is the main difference. And it looks like, it sounds like the book version is larger, kind of like the Iron Throne, make it a little bigger. Book versions of things are often larger. Now, also in the show, we kind of have that front, like large open window area that's kind of facing uh, the top part of the map, I suppose. In the books, it's four large windows, one in each direction. Now, presumably they're open windows since we know Andrew Farman jumped from one of them to his death. Um, but maybe they're, you know, maybe they're openable, closable. Small detail there. We also get the White Raven. We learn that they're larger than Black Ravens, larger than a hawk even. White as snow with black eyes is how they're described. Crescent thinks that if they were albinos, they'd have red eyes. A first-time reader would miss that significance. Even many rereaders would miss that significance. But y'all know to consider... Bloodraven when someone's talking about albinos. But of course, it's Melisandre who has that look in this chapter. But there's also, you know, Ghost has that look, the Werewoods. Yeah, a lot of people have that white skin, red-eyed look that seems to transcend just the old gods worship. It seems to pop up in other places too. So always good to keep an eye out for that. Now, I don't know if Bloodraven is speaking through this bird. I tend to doubt it, but it does say something ominous. It repeats the word lady when it hears the phrase, this is the Lady Shireen. This makes me think of Lady the Direwolf, who is executed unjustly, which sounds like the fate George R. R. Martin has in mind for Shireen. Kind of an innocent put down because of things the adults did that got messed up, right? Shireen has nothing to do with any of this, just like Lady had nothing to do with Micah and the Hound and... Arya and Joffrey having their little fight there. Now, there's even stronger evidence for what's going to happen to Shireen in her dreams. Quote, I had bad dreams, Shireen told him, about the dragons. They were coming to eat me. The child had been plagued by nightmares as far back as Maester Crescent could recall. Yeah, so not where she's introduced this way, but it's also made clear that she's been having these dreams since she was a babe. This works pretty well as foreshadowing for her being burned at the stake, especially given the dragons char their meat before eating it. But this goes beyond Shireen, quote. We have talked of this before, he said gently. The dragons cannot come to life. 
They are carved of stone, child. Um, well, <laughs> Azor High would beg to differ with regard to Stone Dragon's Awakening. And, well, Shireen was unconvinced. Quote, What about the thing in the sky? Dalla and Matrice were talking about the well, and Dalla said she heard the Red Woman tell Mother that it was dragon's breath. If the dragons are breathing, doesn't that mean they're coming to life? Crescent then curses Melisandre for scaring Shireen with this talk. But we know Mel is right on this point. He's wrong on some other things. But the dragons have come to life. So on top of the comet and Shireen, we have another prophetic ominous figure. But not Melisandre, though she is definitely that. But even Melisandre is frightened by Patchface. Here's her thinking of him much later in the series. Quote, Melisandre's face darkened. That creature is dangerous. Many a time I've glimpsed him in my flames. Sometimes there are skulls about him and his lips are red with blood. Yeah, so that's from her solitary A Dance with Dragons chapter. Perhaps a great irony will be that Patchface was intended to be a source of happiness. You know, as they said, someone who might even make Stannis laugh. But instead, we have good reason to expect the polar opposite from him. He won't make anyone laugh. He just scares the crap out of all of us. And he hasn't even done anything yet. <laughs> that's that's good horror, George. All this character has us all scared. And he hasn't done anything wrong. Many of his more famous utterings, Patchfaces, that is, are in this chapter. A lot of them. He speaks of the shadows and, quote, under the sea, a place he's well familiar with, as he was in the same ship that claimed Lord Stefan Baratheon's mission, and he was lost at sea for two days. The man who picked him up from the beach swore he was cold and clammy, yet here he is many years later. He's like a water white, I guess you could say, as Beric is a fire white, maybe cold hands is, a, well, a white white, an ice white, I don't know. We, need, we haven't fully categorized these types of dead beings, but we're getting there. We're getting there. It's all kind of coming into focus for us over time. Now, the line, the shadows come to dance, the shadows coming to dance, that's, that's quite a line. Waymar Royce told the other that he, before he dueled it, a.k.a. the white shadow, to dance with him. He's like, dance with me then. And Miri Mazdur danced with shadows at the end of Danny's arc. That wasn't very long ago in terms of... Uh, book pages, right? We'll save most of the Davos introduction talk for his first chapter, which will be, I think, week three, not week two. I don't think it's next week. Crescent thinks of him as Davos shorthand, perhaps a nickname he earned among people local to Storm's End, whereas everyone else calls him the Onion Knight. Either way, that nickname isn't used again. Um, so eh, whatever. However, the story of how his hand was shortened is told here which tells us as much about Davos as it does Stannis. So it's really good kind of character building uh, two birds with one stone. In a chapter full of foreshadowing where we compare Crescent to Aemon, we have to notice that Davos's later attempt to kill Melisandre is also given a test run here. Davos fares much better, of course, because he survives and is pardoned, and he also, well, doesn't drink any poison. He's immediately portrayed as someone honest despite being a smuggler, which is, so he's kind of like someone that makes you think right away, like really a smuggler that's kind of got this great reputation for honesty. That's interesting. And we know that, and he, he says he tells Stannis the hard truths about the lack of support he's finding in the Stormlands, something that becomes a huge part of Davos and Stannis' relationship, something that Stannis really, really values, which is something that makes people like Stannis, that he 
really wants to hear the truth and he really values and encourages people to be blunt and honest with him. So Davos mentions how most of the Stormlands has gone to Renly. And he also reports on the existence of the Rainbow Guard. So that is an opportunity for George to have Cresson think of Renly because he knew Renly as a child. Well, when Renly was a child, not when Cresson was a child. <laughs> and he thinks of Renly with love, but he also thinks of him as frivolous and kind of unserious. And he thinks, do you know what you're doing? And well, that uh, a lot of people would say that describes Renly quite well, despite the confidence he displays. Yeah, he isn't necessarily um, making the right moves on a lot of things. Stannis, on the other hand, well, Crescent is also fond of him and feels shame at not being a better father figure to a boy who had lost his true father so young. And he, he blames himself for some of Stannis's hard nature, for his inability to laugh, things like that. Basically, Crescent takes on a lot of responsibility, a lot of which is not his responsibility. But this isn't a thing you, you know, say, oh, what an idiot. He's taking on too much responsibility. That's the kind of thing that makes us like him more. I think most of us anyway. And so that, once again, just increases the tragedy behind him. Stannis and Selyse are not exactly a happy couple. They're closer to Robert and Cersei in some ways, though perhaps Selyse is closer to Lysa in that she's easily led, humorless, and not blessed with intelligence or great looks, which Cersei isn't super smart, but she's at least cunning. And she's not humorless, and she's not easily led, and she does have great looks. So, yeah, so in that sense, they're not so, so similar. But Selyse is cold to Shireen, something that many, or that to many, makes her the worst of the group. In other words, at least Cersei and Lysa are protective of their children. You can argue that they are too protective or that they're not very loving. But Selyse is cold to Shireen in, in a way that makes her think that she's kind of almost rejected her. It's a, it's a different level, I think, for, for Selyse. I think that's a fair complaint about her. Now, but we'll have to see how it goes with her in, in, in the book, though, right? In the show, she is all about burning Shireen until she sees it happening, then she regrets it. We have no idea if, if that's how it's going to go in the show. I mean, in the books. Although I will be very clear that I am 99.9% sure that Shireen's getting burned. It's just the, the how and the where and the why are where we can quibble about what might happen. Selyse, of course, is the first one persuaded by Melisandre. And that's why I compare her to Lysa a bit, because it's kind of like, the the rot around that situation came because Littlefinger recognized her as kind of the weak link, the one that could be persuaded and manipulated. And I kind of feel like Melisandre chose Selyse for that reason. Of course, she has much more, say, they're, they're, there's more misguided goodness in Melisandre and Littlefinger is all about just himself. So in that sense, they're not very similar. Over time, we hear that Melisandre has become more and more accepted, kind of like Littlefinger gets accepted over time as well. And with that, Cresson also sees Stannis as changing, and Melisandre is part of that change. And of course, she is introduced as well. It isn't just talked about, it, she actually comes on. On the heels of Miri Mazdur, we get someone who is referred to by many of the same names. But while Miri is modestly dressed and plain looking, Melisandre is well dressed and, well, as Crescent puts it, quote, Many called her beautiful. She was not beautiful. She was red and terrible and red. And Melisandre herself later thinks on the power of appearance and how power itself resides in part in the trappings of power. 
Well, that expl- partly explains why she's always looking so you know fancy, so glorious, so powerful. We have strong reason to suspect she is not as young as she looks, maybe using magic to enhance that effect. Many stories are told in A Song of Ice and Fire of women using blood to maintain their youth. In Melisandre's case, it appears to be a glamour, a strong one, I think. But who's to say there isn't blood magic at the root of glamours or some or most glamours or maybe even all? I don't I'm not really sure. Certainly the glamouring Arya is working with over at the House of Black and White has some blood associated with it. Obviously, some faceless men can just change their face. But early on, she's got to wear that mask. And then, you know, you have to add blood to it and all that. So, yeah, there's definitely blood involved over there. So I wonder, too, if Melisandre is concealing slave tattoos with her glamour. Since this is her introduction, we wonder about basic things like her appearance. Especially given how much stock she places and how she looks, it would not look good in terms of her being a powerful figure if she has slave tattoos. I think that would lower her esteem in the eyes of many Westerosi. Benero and Makoro, et cetera, all have tattoos. The, the fiery hand has tattoos. They're extremely common is my point, these facial tattoos. On the other hand, those two are from Volantis, just like Patchface. All three of them have slave tattoos. So it could just be something that simple that, well, they have the tattoos because they're from Volantis and tattooing is common there. On the other hand, Ashai, there's lots of tattooing in Ashai. So, hmm. Anyway, so like I said before, her white skin and red eyes hearken to the weirwood trees. Ghost, the ghost of High Heart, Blood Raven, and Bonero himself, too. That's another one. Makoro, on the other hand, has black or perhaps blackened skin. So Melisandre is a surprisingly complex person. And she's a cautionary tale. You know, that whole line we get from, uh, well, the line about sorcery is a sword without a hilt. And, well, also, as many great and admirable qualities Stannis has, He also has a lot of terrible qualities. Sorry, Stannis fans. (laughs) One of which is that his worldview, his world philosophy, his ethos, allows for an ally like Melisandre, which I think is not great. (laughs) His belief that the ends justify the means goes too far and does not improve our view of him. Now, to be fair, he backs off on that a bit, but he never really backs off on Melisandre or the things she can do. At least... Not yet. So, nor do several other things introduced here at the start make us like Stannis. It's more uh, kind of an up and down with Stannis. You find things to like, you find things to not like. The things that we like, we like a lot. And the things that we don't like, well, we also don't like a lot. And uh, But like I said, the things that t- t- people tend to appreciate about Stannis, for the most part, they come later. Like his his honesty, his integrity, those things, you don't, see that play out in one chapter. When he decides to sail to the wall, it's, that's the major turning point. It's, it's not just a turning point for him. It's a turning point in everybody's opinion of him. It's a reason to give the guy major respect. I think that is something that it is for me. The first time I was reading the series long ago, I was like, oh, wow, this Stannis guy is really making me like him. At first, I was, you know, this introduction does not do him many favors. But over time, I'm like, hey, that's pretty cool. But even then, even now, he has, you know, the proverbial angel on one shoulder, devil on the other. Davos is the angel saying, don't burn children. And you have Melisandre, who is way more powerful than Davos, 
saying it's okay to kill a child because the ends justify the means. It's okay to even burn a child, his own child, or Stannis' own child, if it goes the way it looks like it will. But of course, Melisandre's complexity goes beyond this because she's clearly not just a devilish figure. She believes Davos is a good guy. She believes Davos is important. So even when Davos tries to kill her later, she doesn't you know, reciprocate. She believes he should you know, be spared because of the war for the dawn and how important that is and what role he'll play. But this whole concept of the suffering of innocence when the Game of Thrones is played out, it's a recurring theme, especially with children, not just innocence, but children, particularly because they're the most tragic in terms of their involvement here. They're the ones that pull at our heartstrings as readers the most. Compare to Ned and Robert arguing over this very concept. It's, like I said, it's been there since the beginning. Ned thinking about how awful Tywin is because of what he's done. Now, Ned is taking the place of Ned, given he's gone, is being taken by Davos. But not really in this book. The whole, the arguments over burning children, uh, Davos and Stannis have that argument. That's next book. But it, obviously it's coming. Perhaps consider Jojen Paste as well, though. Another bloody, pale-skinned, red-eyed person who might not scruple when it comes to killing a child if they think the world is at stake. Right? That's another one to think of to compare to this. Mel sees Renly's death in the flames in this chapter. Well, she doesn't. See, it's revealed that she sees his death in the chapter in this flame. We don't actually see her gaze into the flames. Well, talk about self-fulfilled prophecies, right? Because of this prophecy, Solis thinks, quote, How many swords will the Lord of Light put into my hand? Stannis demanded again. All you need, his wife promised. The swords of Storm's End and Highgarden for a start, and all their lord's bannermen. Well, she's half right-ish. The the Tyrells, led by Sir Loras, wind up allies of the Lannisters instead, after the Shadow Baby kills Renly. But Storm's End requires a second Shadow Baby for Melisandre before it falls and submits because of Sir Courtney Penrose's brave stubbornness. So, you know, I don't know about all you need, but she definitely got, you know... They need a tighter contract, I think. (laughs) (laughs) So, though we're well aware she gets several prophecies wrong, she, you know, that means she gets some right, and she does. And and not just the one she helps fulfill herself, like this last one, uh, by, you know, by making it come true via Shadow Baby. In her one dance POV, she thinks this, quote, Danger to her own person was the first thing she had learned to see back when she was still half a child, a slave girl bound for life to the great red temple. It was still the first thing she looked for whenever she gazed into a fire. Which explains quite well how she saw Crescent's intent, how she knew what he was going to do. She didn't seem to have any... She didn't even pause. It was like, yep, I knew this was happening. And perhaps that's part of why she mocked him. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of out of place. Almost if you look at her arc later, she, mockery isn't really her thing. But maybe this is why she calls him a foolish wise man. Maybe it's because, well, this guy's about to try to kill me. So she's a little put out. <laughs> it's a little uh, extreme. Uh, we don't have any other spots where someone tries to kill Melisandre besides Davos. And, you know, she uh, sees that coming too. She then says something that Maester Lewin perhaps needed to hear from someone besides Osha, or maybe in addition to Osha, quote, 
there are truths in this world that are not taught at Old Town. Ooh, that's a great line if you th- really think about it. And there are endless ways to interpret that statement. And, and given we know she knows what's coming, well, it stands very nicely as a response to what Crescent thinks shortly before about the Strangler. Quote, The alchemists of Lise knew the way of it, though, and the faceless men of Bravos, and the maesters of his order as well, though it was not something talked about beyond the walls of the Citadel. So the Citadel, of course, is Old Town, and that's where he learned about the Strangler, which is this poison he, of course, tries to give to Melisandre. But Melisandre has not only learned how to foresee danger to herself, something that Cresson isn't prepared to in, uh, include in his plotting. He's like, well, maybe she'll know. Maybe she's got the ability to see this coming. Of course, he's not going to consider that. That's the kind of truth that isn't taught at Old Town. So, not a, but not only that, not only has she learned how to foresee danger to herself, she somehow knows how to drink poison and live. <laughs> That's a truth that also probably isn't taught at Old Town. Uh, so, wow. Yeah, there you go. Magic is alive in her. She is, uh, in, her cell, in her own way, she is like the Red Comet. She's like a living version of the Red Comet. She's all red and she heralds all this rise of magic in the story. And Crescent is the old who isn't, uh, you know, the old way. I'm, that I'm sorry. Is the old. He's the old. I'm just laughing. I'm just cracking up at the idea of like cut to Crescent, you know, off in the background, just looking very pissed. <laughs> he's not just being replaced. He's being, <laughs> he's being replaced by magic. <laughs> and dissed. And <laughs> yeah, I dissed him too. <laughs> Melisandre and Stannis are mean to him, but I'm even meaner. <laughs> So, uh, where was I? (laughs) Crescent also notes that the Strangler is purple, which is an important detail when later we consider Sansa's amethyst hairnet, which, you know, amethysts are purple. And the Ghost of Highheart, another, you know, red-eyed, white-skinned person, describes her amethyst hairnet as purple serpents when she's uh, having that vision. And, of course, that's used to kill Joffrey by the Tyrells. So that's kind of funny. If you think about that, you have Olena, who is likely the one that did the poisoning because she's the one who stops to adjust Sansa's hairnet and Sansa later finds there's a missing jewel there. And well, Olena's old too, but she clearly had better success at dropping this purple crystal into Joff's wine glass than Crescent does here. And uh, well, this line here, quote, They said a victim's face turned as purple as the little crystal seed from which his death was grown. But so too did a man choking on a morsel of food. And that is what it at first appears for Joffrey. Everyone thinks he choked on the pigeon pie. He's Even when he's choking, he thinks it's the pigeon pie. He's like, oh, it's so dry, you know, et cetera. And, and Pycelle, when he, you know, opens Joffrey up, does the autopsy, that's the first thing he does is check his throat. And he's like, oh, I didn't find anything there. So that's kind of how they know it's the strangler. So that's another moment set up by this glorious whopper of a chapter that combines so very much foreshadowing with so very much detail, so very much world building, so many characters and concepts introduced while somehow not getting bogged down. He's telling a story while doing a ton of setup. It's really kind of a masterclass, this, this chapter. The chain around Crescent's neck feels heavy as he considers what he's about to do. It's a burden because it's against his beliefs and his order's beliefs, plus he's you know, it, it's literally heavy because he's getting old and, and his strength is failing. 
but his resolve is not. That's one thing that we that I really re- appreciate about him. He's uh, he re- he's really determined here. He also, interestingly, more about Melisandre. He thinks that she is very strong because he falls down when he bumps into Patchface, and she helps him up from behind. And he thinks it's a knight helping him up because oh, this, these hands are very strong. So it's another good example of a thought looking much bigger, or rather. Well, I should say another good example of a thought looking much bigger later on comes here when Crescent thinks that Melisandre's madness must not be allowed to spread beyond Dragonstone. Looking ahead to Benero saying things along these lines, quote, Benero has sent forth the word from Volantis. Her coming is the fulfillment of an ancient prophecy. From smoke and salt was she born to make the world anew. She is Azora High returned, and her triumph over darkness will bring a summer that will never end. Death itself will bend its knee, and all those who die fighting in her cause shall be reborn. So, yeah, maybe Crescent's right. That's that sounds like madness. That's craziness. Like do you, both the idea that that could happen and the idea that we would want that to happen. Like, why would that be a good thing? Given what's just happened in Danny's arc. And what's to come, meaning, you know, Miri Mazdur and all that sacrifice, and what's to come for Melisandre and Stannis and Shireen and other characters, sacrifice is a huge part of the story. It's a recurring theme. And Crescent here gives us an example of what's basically the only kind of acceptable sacrifice. And what I mean is ethical, the uh, acceptably ethical. And by that, I mean he was willing, right? That's the thing here. He has agency in his own death. He's he's killing himself on purpose. He's he's going out on his own terms. Killing an unwilling child or adult is is a completely different kind of sacrifice than volunteering, right? That's a that's a huge thing. So, you know, consider things like Nisa Nisa. You know, the the legend tells us that she was willing. Whether that's true or not is well, we'll have to ask Nisa Nisa and Azor Ahai, or maybe we'll see see get to learn the truth somehow. This is all part of another theme throughout the books, which is that doing good is hard. Doing the right thing can be costly. And after you've done the right thing, people might not even know you did it. Ned Stark, great example. Or won't look on it as having done the right thing. Ned Stark, great example. They won't even look on what you did as a sacrifice. Crescent here is a perfect example of that. Like, most readers don't look at Crescent as having sacrificed himself, but you know, and not in a magical sense, but I would say that's a completely fair description. Stannis doesn't see Crescent as dying for him, right? He sees him as, you know, trying something stupid. He doesn't uh, appreciate that that Crescent tried to kill Melisandre. But a few others around, like another people, meaning uh, some other characters in the room who were watching this happen, they might have seen what Crescent did and thought it was brave and and wished he had succeeded. Because he can't be the only one, well, him and Davos, can't be the only ones that are like, eh, about this Melisandre character. There's other people who certainly are going to be like, Why, burning the seven, we're not down with that, Stannis. But they, they obey anyway because they, you know, well, obedience is part of their culture. So it's this huge, powerful contrast, this sacrifice conundrum. There's like a sacrifice spectrum, you could say, where willing is on one end and uh, I need your blood for my spells is the other end. (laughs) 
And uh, somewhere in between are people who were you know, maybe misled, but willing, et cetera, et cetera. In other poisoning news, Stannis reveals he's fallen for the same mistruth that Cat and Ned were fed, which is the lie that Cersei poisoned John Aaron. But Stannis does at least prove correct when he says Lysa Aaron will never part with Robin. He at least reads that situation correctly. Stannis is also immediately shown to be quite stubborn. So is Solis, maybe even more stubborn than him, which is really saying something. He refuses to make concessions and alliances that he really, really desperately needs. The circumstances are not really motivating him any more than, uh, you know, you'd think that the circumstances would motivate him because it's kind of desperate. But he's sticking to his, his beliefs. This is in part because of Melisandre's visions telling him that he's going to succeed despite that. And in, that is fueled by Solis believing them in so fully. Believing in them so fully. Yeah. <laughs> but at the time, his pride is a huge problem for him. And it's a huge problem for him later. And we've talked about pride a lot. The types of pride of someone like Tywin and, and Walder Frey. Stannis is a different kind of pride. Ty- Tywin is proud of reputation, of wealth. And he uses cruelty to enforce that, to make others see it that way. Stannis takes pride in duty and justice. And justice can be cruel. Justice can be blind. But he doesn't do it for its own sake. He doesn't use cruelty as a weapon. He doesn't use it. At, he doesn't make examples out of people in the way that Tywin does. Also, Stannis's capabilities are shown. Now, though they include... Uh, meaning his army includes several lords of the Narrow Sea and Salador San and some others, we're told that it's not a lot. Uh, Robert is formidable and charismatic, but lazy. Renly is popular but frivolous. Stannis is unpopular but serious and intelligent. So there's a lot of parallels here, or, or, or not parallels, but uh, kind of um, counterpartism here. You have... Uh, Robert and Renly both had no trouble attracting large armies, where but they had other issues. Whereas Stannis is really good at leading armies, but he's not great at getting the army in the first place because he's kind of unpopular or very unpopular. In addition to his personality and these different lords backing him, he is gathering ships. Quote, No craft that had come within sight of Dragonstone this past half year had been allowed to leave again. Lord Stannis's fury, a triple-decked war galley of 300 oars, looked almost small besides some of the big-bellied carracks and cogs that surrounded her. Now, this is extremely similar to what Balon has been doing on the Iron Islands. In fact, let's jump ahead to A Storm of Swords' Catelyn for this quote. The Iron Men kept me there more than half a year, they did. King mm. Balon's command. There you go. Past half year, same thing. Theon, of course, notes the longships hosting in his first chapter, which will be week three for, for Valaridus, the Clash of Kings. Uh, most of these longships are still out there, but with Euron. <clears throat> uh, so, in the case of the ships at Dragonstone, Fury included, which he thinks about, uh, most are destroyed by wildfire later, and Davos's son Merrick dies with Fury as well. And Davos actually predicts this fate. You know, like a lot of these introductory chapters do, George drops a lot of foreshadowing when we see a character for the first time. He very often tells us, maybe not how they're going to end, but at least something major about them. Uh, Here we go. He ties himself to Patchface. Quote, 
We all should be in Motley tonight, he said gloomily as Crescent seated himself, for this is fool's business whereabout. The red woman has seen victory in her flame, so Stannis means to press his claim, no matter what the numbers. Before she's done, we're all like to see what Patchface saw, I fear. The bottom of the sea. Well, Davos didn't literally see the bottom, but close enough, close enough. I think that counts. <laughs> we'll probably get to a point in the books where most of the characters introduced in this chapter are dead. But for now, most of them are alive. Crescent, of course, goes, you know, at the end of it. But Davos and Stannis and Selyse and Maester Pylos and Melisandre and Patchface and even Shireen are all still alive for now. Uh, in the long run, almost all of them will probably die. Okay. Davos has a chance. Real quick, you know how you listed off all those names? Yeah. And, and I don't know if anyone has ever seen, I'm sure you've seen them as these, those shirts. It's like John and Sansa. Oh, and yeah. Arya, you know, <laughs> I picture a shirt that says all those characters and like, and Maester Pylos <laughs> and like, even fine. Shireen <laughs> is what he listed. <laughs> well, I meant that even Shireen is still alive. Like, yes. I, I, I know. <laughs> Yeah, I, I just did a very, very vivid image of a potential shirt. <laughs> yeah, by the end of that, that almost that I think probably that whole list, except for except for Davos and and yeah, maybe Pylos <laughs> will be dead. Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> then we'll need another shirt <laughs> to show. Say, haha, I did make it. You discounted me. Uh, quote Maester Pylos. Mm-hmm. A few thoughts from Joe Buckley. Uh, he points out how a- across. Uh, some several chapters coming forward here. We introduce Relor, as well as the House of Black and White, as well as the Drowned God religion. It's it's a difficult thing to introduce one religion, let alone three. And we've already had the Seven and uh, the Old Gods introduced. So yeah, to look at all the religions popping up. Joe points out that Crescent is the lone point of view that we actually have strong feelings for. Mm, I mean, obviously your mileage may vary, but I think I agree with that. Will is, he's fine, but we don't get to know him very well. Uh, Pate is kind of pitiful and creepy. So, you know, you don't really, maybe you feel a little sad for him, but I don't, you know, there's some distance between there because of his, uh, what he's looking for. Chet, it's real hard to feel sympathy for Chet. I mean, ugh. and Veramir, same difference. I mean, these these two are are violent rapists. So, yeah, you're not, uh, not easy or, yes, yeah, it's hard to like them. Joe also points out that the prologues are very much uh, where we get a lot of the supernatural interacting with the real world. Yeah, it's a big part of that. It's a, it's a thing that he does because it's a way to sort of keep some distance between the supernatural and our main POVs to help keep the mystery while letting us engage with it, but not too much. Which, by the way, is something that he doesn't do with the epilogues. Of course, there aren't epilogues in all the books. But in the two epilogues we have, there's no magic at all, basically. We've got uh, Merritt Frey being hung. Well, you're going to count Stoneheart that, you know, at the end of Merritt Frey. That's magic, but it isn't really displayed as magical. The whole chapter just has her appear at the end. And, of course, Kevin's chapter, Varys killing him and all that, there's, there's no magic in that one either. Unless you count the brief appearance of the mountain. All right. Stannis, uh, speaking of magic, he kind of, we find out later, he starts off as atheist. Well, he becomes atheistic after seeing his parents die in front of him. He doesn't commit to R'hllor, but he, 
uses R'hllor and he admits the power of Melisandre. And that's interesting because maybe one of the things that pushes Stannis a little farther towards accepting Melisandre is seeing her drink poison and live. He's a, you know, results-oriented kind of guy. He's a, especially at this point, it ends justify the means kind of guy. So if he sees, wow, this woman drank poison and lived, well, that's proof that she's not just talk. And since Stannis is kind of blind to the morality of, of using Melisandre's power and, and being backed by her, then if he's just very utilitarian about it, and he looks at her and says, well, she's got real power, then, well, you can kind of see why this chapter would uh, lead to him uh, accepting her even more. And in that sense, it's a, it's a call back to Miri Mazdur, perhaps, by trying to murder the stallion who mount the world, may have helped create it. And in this same situation, we may have the same thing here, where Crescent was trying to kill Melisandre, and he actually made her look more powerful. Uh, in all these years, Joe says he's never connected that Robert might have resented Rhaegar because of Stefan and uh, Kasana sailing to es- Essos to, and to try to find Rhaegar a bride. I never thought of that either. That's really cool. Uh, the idea that Robert would be, uh, you know, vindictive or resentful because his parents went to find Rhaegar a bride and that's what got them killed. Yeah, never thought of that. That's a really good catch. Good job, Joe. So, uh, yeah, shout out to Joe Buckley's Isle of Faces podcast, where he frequently has follow-up episodes paired with Valar Reredis, where he goes into additional detail with some of the plot lines. So definitely y'all should check that out if you're looking for an even more thorough Valar Reredis experience. All right, some random questions and miscellaneous thoughts on this chapter. And not a surprise that it took us almost an hour to do that one. Um, Renly, when Crescent's thinking about Renly as a boy, he thinks about how he's running around saying, I'm the this, I'm the that, you know, pretending to be different uh, historical famous figures, which is very similar to what John and Rob did. And interestingly enough, all three of them were kings for a very short time. So I wonder if that's something that, that George is tying together. And of course, in John's case, he's a very short time as king on the show. He isn't king at all in the books yet. But I think that if he is king in, in the books, I think it will also not be for a super long time. So I think that could work out as sort of a three-way parallel to the three kids that ran around saying, I'm the blankety blank, I'm the blankety blank, are the three who uh, lasted very, very short as kings. Uh, the Celtic hedge knight, Warren, says, I have a curiosity born from this prologue. Given that Robert was fostered by John Aaron, why did no major house foster Stannis, Renly, or both? That's a good question. Well, it's not an automatic that fostering is done. And it could be in part because of the death of uh, Stannis' parents at the age they were at. Maybe they were planning on having him sent somewhere else and didn't. Um, There's several other examples of characters who aren't fostered, several who are. I mean, for example, uh, Benjen was never fostered. Uh, I think maybe that the farther down you go, in the line of succession, the less likely you are to be fostered somewhere else. Yeah, I think maybe there's two aspects to it. One, they're less likely to maybe get a very prestigious place to be fostered. But two, it's like the whole heir and a spare thing. Maybe you send your heir off to have those experiences, but you want to keep, you know, a, a son or two at home. Yeah. Just in case. 
Definitely. And I think there's also the, the politics of the era really matter a lot. In this time, there is room for us to be a little conspiratorial and wonder if some of these houses weren't trying to bring themselves closer together ally-wise because of the bad rule of King Aries and looking ahead to what they were worried from worried about from him in the long term. Um, certainly, there's a lot of evidence that a lot of the Southern houses were uniting in advance of Robert's Rebellion, and that may be related to this. Um, on the other hand, you know, we think about Renly. I don't, you know, Renly was so young when his parents died, that would explain why he wasn't sent somewhere else. Stannis is a bit harder to figure. Although I will say when someone's that young, when their parents died, you, you might think that that's extra reason for them to go be fostered so that they yeah. can actually be raised by a lord and lady. And that it does It might happen. be a reason, yeah, for a, someone, a bannerman to come to the castle. Obviously, yeah. that's when you have their hand and all that, who that's basically them being fostered at that point, their regent, I suppose. Yeah, you have a lot of them start at a pretty early age, like age seven or eight as pages, and then they move on to be squires and then presumably knights a lot of times. For example, uh, Domeric Bolton was a page for Lady Dustin, but he squired at the Red Fort. A lot of times they stay in one place for both of those, but sometimes they move on. Edric Dane's another example of someone who was a page for Beric Dondarrion and then became his squire. So that's someone yeah. who stayed. So you could say he was fostered with Beric Dondarrion. Yeah. Technically, like that is what it is that you might, there, there's differences, I'm, I suppose. Yeah, but. fostering includes paging or squiring or... or being a lady-in-waiting lady in waiting, or, yeah, right. you know, just being a young child who's not at the age of a page yet. Yeah, say that a the age of a page. Yeah, the age of a page. <laughs> so I think that it's just, uh, it's kind of like the marriages. It's sometimes there's... You find that a, a father has and then mother have Lord and Lady have arranged for all these marriages, or sometimes you find that it hasn't been done. Like Rob wasn't betrothed. You know, he was 14, 15. It wouldn't have been a surprise if Rob had already been betrothed, but it wasn't exactly a surprise that he hadn't been either. Uh, so it just kind of depends. Um, I, there aren't hard and fast rules for this sort of thing. But great question, Warren. We got we we, we were able to riff on that for a while. Speaking of um young kids raised in households that, that aren't necessarily that of their parents. A major Dragonstone character, um, he doesn't get a lot of screen time, but he's important because of who he is, is Edric Storm. Edric Storm should be already at this castle, but George decided to wait on introducing him, which is understandable. There's so many characters to introduce here. Th- throwing even one more into the mix would, would be a challenge. So I'm, I think that makes a lot of sense, but it's interesting to note that Edric Storm was kind of held off from PJ Moon, patron, do you think King Stannis intentionally tried to push Maester Creston away, m- meaning not inviting him to the feast and allowing him to be mocked, because he knew he'd try to kill Mel and end up killing himself? We know Mel always looks for danger to herself in the flames, and she tells Creston it's not too late to pour out the wine. Plus, King Stannis says he doesn't want Creston to kill himself in his service. Yeah, that's an interesting interpretation. I-, I agree that that's possible. I tend to think that no, Mel Sunder didn't actually tell Stannis that Creston was coming to kill her. Um... I think Stannis just meant that more physically wise, Crescent is is old. He's having trouble climbing stairs. You know, he's just fallen down and, you know, because he's gotten tangled with Patchface. And that's what Stannis seems to be referring to. But it's possible that Mel just told Stannis, hey, you know, Crescent is coming and he's going to try to kill me. Just watch, you know, maybe she, she told him this to prove herself, to say, uh, you know, to predict what's going to happen. That would really look like, wow, she told me that he was going to come poison her, and he did. That would be pretty uh, a pretty good demonstration of her power. 
on the other hand, it's not clear that Melisandre has Stannis's ear yet. It's 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 you know, Crescent points out that it's Solis that had brought her in, and Melisandre has been steadily gaining more and more uh, stature at court, and we don't know that she's talking to Stannis regularly yet. She certainly is by the time uh, you know Davos's chapters roll around, but uh, this may be the beginning of that right here. From Kyle Zipter on Facebook says, with regards to the Maester conspiracy, not that this is enough to discount it, but neither Lewin nor Crescent seem to drop any hints of it. Crescent thinks about so much of the magic stuff, this would be an opportunity. That's a great point. You know, maybe it's it's easy to just say, yeah, well, Crescent isn't involved in the conspiracy. They didn't they didn't include him in it. And that's entirely possible. But it's, it's, it's a great point by Kyle that if George wanted to give some hints about the major conspiracy with Crescent seeing the comment and thinking about how superstitious he is and, oh, I shouldn't be so superstitious. This is a sign of a weak mind, blah, blah, blah. He could have easily gone from there to think about how the, the Citadel specifically is trying to get rid of talk like that or tamp that down or what have you. But it's an interesting lack of that here. Also from Facebook, here's a quote from uh, listener John Pascal, who I took, I'm going to read this, this, this thing he wrote in, in its entirely because I think it's a really good uh, piece of writing. There's something about reading the narration of a person who's been around forever and living a largely peaceful life, experiencing something completely unknown that awakens feelings in him he probably hasn't felt in years. Putting aside the obvious symbolism of the changing conditions, you have to wonder how false and illusory the preceding piece had been. It's almost as if there are people out there, not Crescent, to be clear, that sense a conflict considerably more destructive than Robert's Rebellion will take place at some point in the near future. Yeah, I mean, you can there. It could be it could be seen certainly from the reader's perspective. You can see it with Stannis gathering ships, Balon gathering ships, Rob crowning himself, Renly crowning himself, just etc. All these things. But if you're a character in the story, you might have that sense as well. Um, and well, that's pretty neat just to see have have this all from Crescent's perspective. I thought it was really well said by John Pascal, so I wanted to read that. Good job, John. Nina Friel, frequent excellent contributor says that what Davos says to Crescent about the Stormlands hints that Renly was exaggerating his support. That though his army was large, some of them held back or gave minimal support. That's a great catch. Uh, Davos was saying what Davos says doesn't exactly line up with what Renly says. Now, Davos says that a lot of them are rising for Renly and some for Stannis, but a lot of others are kind of unsure at this point. Whereas when we see Renly, he's like basically saying that almost everyone's behind him. So he's probably exaggerating a bit because Davos is probably not exaggerating. Davos is all this talk about being honest and being blunt. Well, and in, once we see inside Davos's head, we know that this is how he is. So I believe Davos. And we also know that Renly can be someone who exaggerates a bit. So this lines up very well with what we know about them already. So that's a very good catch. Uh, Stefan uh, from Flick. Stannis says the line, I'll not have you kill yourself in my service. To Crescent, and then he proceeds to do just that uh, willfully. In fact, drinking poison, obviously, nice. It's like one of the quicker resol- one of the quicker uh, foreshadowing slash resolutions we've ever seen. <laughs> I don't even know if you want to call that foreshadowing, but uh, that's fair too. I think uh, from Chris Cabeth, I think the phrase "quote he was a maester trained and chained in the great citadel of Old Town" just speaks to how out of depth Crescent is. He's almost like a bird with their wings clipped. He can't reach the higher mysteries, and that's what Crescent is up against between Melisandre and Dragonstone and the Comet and all this other stuff. 
that really struck me differently this time around and is one of those things that you need Marwin to point out all the way in A Feast for Crows a long time from now, how the Citadel doesn't want a world with magic. Yeah. Koi Venazi uh, says, with regards to Chet, who I said I didn't have a great parallel to him, he says... Chet gives us insight into Oathbreakers, like those uh, in the end of A Dance with Dragons. Hmm, okay. That's a good point. Mahimi, of course, he means those who stab John. That's a good point. I like that a lot, actually. I hadn't thought of it, and I think you nailed it. Good job, Koi Venazi. Again, very much a good reason why we do these things semi-private, so that our live stream audience can catch things like that. Perfect example of that happening. Kate Bertinsky agrees, says, good catch, Koi Venazi. It does seem like a setup for the mutiny within the watch, just against a different Lord Commander. Right on. Jennifer Taylor says, love how both of Stannis' closest advisors are Lobo. Yeah, true that. Even and even uh, Melisandre seems to be lowborn. I'm not sure if she, I think Jennifer is referring to Davos and, and Crescent here. I, I thought they were referring to Davos and Melisandre. Oh, okay, right they're, on. Because they're both lowborn, and Crescent isn't exactly one of his closest advisors. That's true. These he days. was one of her closest Kurt, yeah. advisors. That's a good point. Yeah, I guess you're right. you could say all three. Yeah. Either way, I mean, I'm not. Does it even I say? Know, I don't know Crescent's backstory. I don't know that he's lowborn. Yeah, you're right. We I don't, don't know think maesters are all. I don't think. I think they're more likely to not be lowborn because of all the. The privilege and having to learn how to read yeah. and write. I, I wonder what the stats are, but I would, if you were going to twist my arm, I would say definitely more than 50% of the maesters were not lowborn. Without necessarily being highborn either, right? Like yeah. midborn. Midborn, like, like yeah. Middle or class. Least, yeah, like, lower sons and yeah. stuff like that, but middle class, you know, like Enough a, money a castle child, yeah. for example. Yeah, yeah, perfect. Or a, a merchant family. There's a, there's a bunch of in betweens between the Lannisters and Pate. Yeah, <laughs> good point. Yeah, <laughs> there is a bit of a range between those extremes. <laughs> okay, that is it for the massive and wonderful and glorious and epic and mysterious and creepy prologue to A Clash of Kings. Most certainly my favorite of all the prologues, but that's saying something because prologues are awesome. I mean, Faramir's prologue is so cool. Uh, Will's prologue is I'm just going to go off on this. All right. But before we move on, sure. Um, Brian E said, "Proud Wing is a a goshawk, so a low altitude flyer." Stannis was made to feel bad that Proud Wing didn't fly high, but Proud Wing was never meant to. Proud Wing was low born. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, <laughs> low born. Oh. <laughs> If you make me make a vomit sound on a pun, you know it's something because, uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm grinning over here. I love it. Well played, Brian E. Shout out to Westeros and American Musical. <laughs> Check it out on YouTube. Lots of views. It's awesome. Shay and I got to see it live. <laughs> okay. That's halfway through the episode. Right? <laughs> that beast Ooh. of a chapter. Aria 1. Aria 1 is is shorter than the average Clash of Kings chapter, but there's a lot in it. I, I think Aria 1 is four times uh, shorter than Crescent, <laughs> but Aria has 10 chapters, so don't get, don't, get, uh, don't get feeling too big, Crescent. The gang meets Yorin's recruits, a.k.a. the one where Aria breaks Hot Pie's nose. Almost every part of this chapter is a warm-up or, say, practice for what's to come for her later. Quote, at Winterfell, they had called her Arya Horseface, 
and she thought nothing could be worse. But that was before the orphan boy Lommy Greenhands had named her Lumpy Head. <laughs> this is funny to me, right? Like, remember back when we laughed at her first cliffhanger ending? Was it Septimordain and her mother were waiting to scold her? Oh. By the way, would you rather be called Horse Face or Lumpy Head? Definitely Lumpy Head. Me too. I just, <laughs> I just want to say, I, I definitely, I'd rather go with Lumpy Head. Yeah, that's not close. <laughs> Give me all the Lumpy Heads before the Horse Faces. And so the, but the, the, so she's obviously in the long run getting called a name is nothing for what Arya has got to face. And her perspective is changing pretty quickly uh, and changing names. Of course, that's a huge part of, of her arc. She's going to be changing names constantly. It's going to be like a daily thing almost. And uh, she's even bothered by them making fun of needle, which is another thing that's like, that's not even going to register as a problem for her later. She's like, they're making fun of my sword. <laughs> I've, Almost been killed a bunch of times. <laughs> what does that matter to me? I've been starving. I've been hungry. I've been chased. None of these things are going to matter to her later. They, they wouldn't even... She's going to look back on this and be like, I was bothered by them calling me Lumpy Head? <laughs> it's only going to get worse from here. The, the suffering and the nicknames both. And Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny. Horse face, Lumpy Head. That's nothing. <laughs> not only different names, different actual identities. It's not just going to be things they call her. She's going to actually have to be something else. And well, right now that starts. She's pretending to be a boy. She's already been mistaken for, well, what was it? The rat catcher's daughter, whatever those uh, city watchmen thought she was. Now she's pretending to join the Night's Watch. And this is all great for her faceless person resume. She's like, yeah, I've already got practice being somebody else. And she's already uh, rehearsing Serio's lessons in her mind, which is valuable for her faceless man resume as well. But even while thinking of Sirio's lessons and all this other stuff, she's remembering that she's a Stark of Winterfell and she's thinking that direwolves don't cry. So it's really fitting that John, who's her closest, uh, the person closest to her, the person she most likes in this world, uh, and maybe the one she has the most in common with. And it's her, his brotherhood she's pretending to join. That's kind of fitting. And it's he who gave her the sword she's fiercely holding on to. The sword that contains so much of the symbolism for her identity, the sword that to her represents a lot of who she is. And that's interesting because she's constantly concealing who she is while carrying around this sword that is a reminder of who she really is. Not revenge? <laughs> that joke never gets old. I know, it does it. Okay, <laughs> on we go. <laughs> and that's why she conceals Needle and doesn't give it up later when she's supposedly supposed to be becoming no one. She's supposed to have gotten rid of Needle. She doesn't. Now, almost right away in this chapter, Yorin says something not unlike what Tyrion says to Jon when they're making their way to the wall. Quote, You got a long way to go in bad company. I got 30 this time. Men and boys all bound for the wall. Don't be thinking they're like that bastard brother of yours. Yeah, though they're bad company till the day they die. Quite a few very important characters. Ah, gotcha. <laughs> Quite a few very important characters are introduced here. Uh, you know, and of course, also like Tyrion, uh, he, he points out that the worst of them are rapers. And uh, even worse, the three chained up ones. And of course, the three chained up ones, uh, two of them are introduced, Rorge and Biter. Uh, Arya takes note 
uh, because of their appearance. They really stand out. Uh, and we're told that they came from the black cells. We know from the So Spake Martins that Rorge was running an illegal fighting ring, like a underground fighting ring. And he had actually trained Biter like a pit fighter. And I suppose that they put him in, this, in the black cells because that's basically slavery. And that's, you know, illegal in the Seven Kingdoms. And uh, Biter himself, well, he's basically half animal. So you can see why they put him in the black cells because he's, well, he's liable to go eat somebody. I think Rorge would have done pretty well in Gagasos or Slaver's Bay, but uh, I'm not sure how well he would have done on the wall, which was, you know, their original destination here. Those two are thankfully killed in A Feast for Crows. Rorge is killed by Brienne, Biter by Gendry himself, who has, of course, appeared before in Tabo Mott's shop, but that's just a preview. Now he's a part of the story as a character instead of a piece of evidence for the seed is strong slash Lannister incest mystery. And he's a character I'm really looking forward to thinking about during this reread because we can be very sure some of, if not a lot of his arc will be different from the show since on the show he was mashed up with Edric Storm and a, a decathlete of some kind able to row or run great distances as well as fight and forge and forget about all that for now. It's also smoothly done by George to have Arya thinking so much about Jon while she's hanging out with Gendry, a character in similar circumstances to Jon, right? Gendry was headed for the wall, right? A bastard, unaware of his true heritage, heritage that kind of puts him in play on the board as a piece in the Game of Thrones, heritage that gives him a claim to, if not a major seat to the throne itself. So yeah, Gendry and Jon have a lot in common, plus their closeness to Arya. But, of course, Gendry never makes it to the wall. So, well, maybe he'll meet John later, if you look like at, he does in the show. If you look at the original letter as well, they would have had another similarity, which is a romance with Arya. Oh, yeah. Good point. Good point. <laughs> now, of course, a romance with Arya is not a sure thing in the books. It's, it's, it certainly happens in the show. I do suspect it's it's going to happen in the books. Not a sure thing. With, with but Gendry, I think it's pretty not, not John. Right. No, I, I know. Of course, of course. And of to, course, to, in the, be here, to be clear to the, our listeners. Right. Uh, in case that wasn't clear, the original 1993 outline called for sort of a, a Tyrion, John, Arya love triangle of sorts. Of course, no one was going to love Tyrion in that. <laughs> it was Tyrion loving Arya, Arya loving John, And I don't know who John was supposed to be into in that one, but duty. probably not Tyrion. Duty and honor. Yeah, duty and honor. Right, right. Okay. That Maybe sense. Tyrion. Is, is is that Tyrion's nickname, Duty and Honor? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and of course, like Jon Snow, Gendry isn't the only one with a claim to his family's seat and the Iron Throne. Uh, Edric Storm, for example, who we mentioned in the prologue chapter. And it seems George had a plan for all this from pretty early on, at least part of a plan, right? Sure, sometimes George gets some of the details together without getting all the details together. As we pointed out in our full A Game of Thrones review wrap-up episode, the appendix contains a big chunk of Baratheon history, you know, uh, stuff about Ori's Baratheon and all that. So he definitely had some of this planned out. And that gives us another strong tie-in here. The Night's Watch, Storm's End, and the Baratheons blacksmithing, speaking harshly to a Stark kid about identity and upbringing and not being raised in a castle, about privilege. Donald Noy's shadow is here. Not his shade, he's not dead yet. But Yorin... And Donald Noy, both members of the Night's Watch, both, uh, you know, grizzled gray beards who have seen it all, so to speak, both give a Stark kid, you know, a talking to about, you know, how to fit in. 
for different reasons how to fit in, but it's a very strong parallel there. And speaking of death, uh, Jockin isn't really mentioned here. He, we know he's the third one in the cage with Rorge and Biter, but he technically isn't even mentioned. But we do not know how he ended up there. Getting captured on purpose is one possible theory, but we don't, it's not the only one. Faceless man, he could have just been captured. It's, some people just really think that's a stretch that Jockin would have been captured and, uh, you know, without planning for it. But I, I wouldn't take it that far. I think, uh, I think he, there's, there's no reason to think he couldn't have, you know, he's not godlike. He's amazing, but he's not perfect. Yorin fills in a piece of the mystery for Arya that the plan was for Eddard to take the black. It had been arranged, most likely by the same person responsible for Gendry's presence here, which is Varys. Varys even points this out later that he tried to save Gendry. But to clear things up for the reader, Arya realizes what went wrong and says so. Quote, Joffrey, Arya breathed. Someone should kill him. Someone will, but it won't be me, nor you, neither. Well, Yorin, right again. Someone does, and it's not her, like he says. <laughs> and not no one. He says someone should kill him. <laughs> he doesn't say no one. <laughs> he chose his words carefully. He's also right that her rage, expressed in part by the beating she gives Hot Pie, is in part rooted in the loss of her father. He's observant in that regard. She doesn't cry for Ned, though, just as she doesn't cry at the beating Yorin gives her. Just like John refuses to cry out when his own brothers come at him and pin his arm for what Donald Noy calls shaming them. John and Arya have so much in common, not just themselves, but in the way they're mentored and who their mentors are. Of course, as I've said before, all the early Clash of Kings chapters and quite a few of the later ones mention the comet. Here, Gendry calls it the Red Sword, which is a dead ringer for Lightbringer called the Red Sword of Heroes. Uh, Gendry is someone who learned from Tabho Mott, the guy who, you know, reforges ice, the guy that uh, Ned talks to. He could perhaps deal with Valyrian steel later in the series, meaning Gendry or, or Tabho Mott, really. But uh, maybe Gendry could uh, reforge ice or something cool like that. Maybe he, you know, we see him in the show being, a, a you know, helping make a bunch of dragon glass uh, items. So, yeah, forging could be in his future and maybe Valyrian steel is part of that. We'll see. And of course, Tab Homad is the one who splits ice in two, so it would be kind of uh, fitting for Gendry to restore that. Well, regardless, this chapter gives us a lot of reasons to think about blacksmiths <laughs> and, their, and their works. Donald Noy, Tab Homad, Gendry. Yeah, a lot of blacksmithing going on here. A couple thoughts from uh, Joe Buckley. Arya gets an entire side of the book all to herself. The rest of the POVs are all about the various courts of kings. Tyrion isn't out with the clansmen. This time he's in King's Landing. Catelyn goes all over the place with 20, 20 men. He, 20 good men. I didn't even think of that. <laughs> and it's, it's so, really, it's only Arya that's kind of out on the road with the common people, with the small folk. She's the only one not directly dealing with kings and queens. And, you know, she deals with Roos for a little while and, and Roos indirectly is dealing with kings and queens. But yeah, good catch by Joe there. Yeah, she's our, uh, our view into a lot of the, the common folk, which later gets taken up by Brienne after Arya moves on to uh, Essos. Arya knows that Ned was supposed to take the black, as we pointed out, and we wonder if that's ever going to come back around, if she's ever going to like talk about that, kind of piece together what happened with, with John or with anyone. There, there's not much they can do about it, of course. They'll, they'll know that Joffrey, she knows that Joffrey was responsible and Joffrey will have been long dead. 
But they might figure out that Littlefinger had something to do with it. Maybe Bran will will give them some insight there. And that could be part of what leads to Littlefinger's downfall in the books, maybe. Could be, could be. Uh, some random thoughts and questions from y'all. Nina points out that Arya wants King's Landing to be destroyed. She thinks about it being all washed away until she remembers Sansa is still there. So we have a kind of a parallel where, where both sisters kind of temporarily forget each other, but it comes back to them quickly enough. Stefan B. from Flick points out that the concept of, quote, castle forged steel seems a little odd since there should be good blacksmiths in a city, especially one like King's Landing. Now, that's a good point. Um, he points out that guilds are a thing in Middle Ages, uh, medieval times, and that's where you get a lot of really excellent craftsmanship. And those are, those are city things, not castle things. Westeros is a bit different, of course. There's only five cities in all of Westeros. Um, some of the castles are nicer than others. So, you know, castle forge may not mean as much in, I don't know, House Smallwood than it does for Winterfell. And some smiths may owe the castle this work because they learned their blacksmithing from them. Uh, but I guess Stefan may be pointing to something that is, it wouldn't be called, uh, it wouldn't be called off, but it's maybe something that works differently in the real world. So uh, it's a good, good thing to raise. I, li- I like looking at these real world details and comparing to how George is using them. Every once in a while, he does something that maybe isn't realistic, but maybe he's got a reason for it. Maybe this, uh, maybe we can explain this one. But... That may require further research. I got to admit, I'm not an expert on the guild system. He also points out the extreme fast resolving foreshadowing comeuppance of Hot Pie talking about kicking another boy in the balls, only Ari to to do that to him. Well, with her stick instead of her foot, that's worse as far as as far as the pain goes. Uh, John O'Donnell, uh, who has a great quote here. I pulled this word for word from Facebook. He says, as a father camp counselor, and former eight-year-old boy. I believe I am qualified to suggest this is precisely the kind of story a boy like that, meaning hot pie, would make up on the fly. You know, he's blustering and and trying to be a bully. It combines violence, genitals, and bathroom humor and is so perfect. Indeed, hot pie's comedy routine is what prevents these chapters from being so morbid. It's true. Hot pie comes off as kind of a bully here, but later he's he's likable. He's funny. He's He helps keep things from being too dark. That's a great point. He is comic, he is comedy, uh, comic relief. Uh, he's kind of dolorous Ed in a sense. Uh, if everything is awful. The, the character is the character that he's associated with. Isn't very funny. John nor Aria are very funny characters. They're great characters, but they don't have much in the, in the way of a sense of humor. So having this balance out is really important as a artistic device. But George, as he does kind of twist the trope a bit, And you would not think that Hot Pie is going to be the comic relief given this introduction. He comes off as as a bully, and you don't normally see the comic relief get brutalized like that. (laughs) So anyway, good job, George, pulling another fast one on us. Archmaester Rennie, another person uh, commenting from the Flick app, which you can uh, join by following the links either in the video or the podcast description. It is for mobile devices only. Anyway, the question here is from Archmaester Rennie. Why does Varys want to protect Gendry? That is a big open question. I'm glad you asked. If you hadn't asked, I would have stuck an answer in anyway, because he does mention, I may have stuck it in in the Tyrion chapter, because that's when he admits to Tyrion that he tried to save uh, Gendry. He doesn't mention him by name, but he does mention him. So it's a conundrum, because 
with Tyrek, which that's the character of who disappears during the riots that is never found. You wonder if Varus is hiding him somewhere to use as like an heir for Casterly Rock to install him after they, you know, foist Fagon on the realm, right? They he want to wants to have like a set of members of all the great houses to be in charge in this new regime that they're imagining, that they're trying to concoct. The problem with Gendry being their plan for Castle uh, for Storm's End is that they're sending him to the wall. So that doesn't really fit. If he goes to the wall, then his claim is invalidated. So it almost seems like Varus is legitimately concerned with Gendry's life because he's not stashing him. Putting him in the wall is not really stashing. You could argue that that maybe you could bring him back from the wall. You could say, well, John is brought back from the wall. You know, Rob intended to bring John back from the wall by volunteering a hundred men, by saying, hey, the king's word can supersede someone's oath. And he's not wrong. Kings can do that. It's maybe not the maybe not a the best precedent to, to set, but it can be done. Just like the king can end the way the king's guard work by adding the hound on and firing Barristan. Like they King can do what they want. The king is above the law. It's just a matter of whether the realm will tolerate that and go along with it or whether they'll rise up. And how much it cheapens the position itself and the institution. Yeah, absolutely. So it's not something you do lightly, but it can be done. So we get back to this part of, maybe it's part of Varus' personality. So if if he wasn't just trying to save Gendry in order to stash an heir to Casterly, I'm sorry, to Storm's End, then we have to look at Varus' own background. There's a lot of thought out there that Varus might be himself the child of a noble house, like a bastard or a, a house or, or someone who came from a house that lost its power and was thus thrust out into the world like an orphan and thus has sympathy for characters in a similar spot. If Varus is a Blackfire or a descendant of Aryan Brightflame, which is entirely possible, then he, he would have a lot of sympathy for characters who were in a noble house especially young kids, because they would have had an upbringing like his. You know, they were once a part of something powerful, but they find themselves homeless and penniless, uh, chased, you know, threatened. So he might actually have a soft spot for them, which would make Varus quite an interesting character if he's willing to do awful things to kids while also protecting other kids. So I could really see that. I definitely lean towards that because I don't know that, you know, if they wanted to protect Gendry and hide him from in a place that was safe without stripping him of his claims. It's not like the wall was the only option, right? I mean, they did. if they're hiding Tyrek, they clearly didn't hide Tyrek on the wall. So I don't know. I think that there's a, I really like the idea that Varus has a soft spot for noble bastards. But we'll just have to wait and see. That does it for Arya 1. Let's move on to our final chapter of today. Sansa won, the one where Sansa saves Dantos, a.k.a. the gang jousts for Joff's name day. Quote. The morning of King Joffrey's name day dawned bright and windy with the long tail of the great comet visible through the high, scuttling clouds. For his name day, Joff has a tourney. It stands in stark contrast, yes, pun intended, to the great tourney in Ned Stark's honor so much that the winner of it meaning the winner of Ned's tourney, the Hound, isn't even bothering to enter this one. And Cersei isn't even attending her own son's birthday event. It also isn't public. 
because of the unrest and the, well, not so popular Lannister family, Joffrey, you know, executing Ned had some fallout and, of course, pushback. So they're holding this tournament behind the walls of the Red Keep. Comparing Arya to Sansa is a major topic. It's something that, you know, lots of ink has been spilled over, lots of words on podcasts. And, well, since we're going back to the start here, it's a time to think about that again. Even though Sansa later conceals her identity as Elaine, it's a difficult thing for her to do. She's, well, she's beautiful. Uh, She doesn't, it's not easy for her to just, she can't just cut her hair and look like a boy like Arya. There are a few times she's worried someone will recognize her where Arya has less worry for that, a lot less worry for that. We've spoken how ill-suited each Stark sister would be if their positions were reversed. And well, yeah, just like Sansa could not pretend to be a boy, Arya would have a hard time keeping her cool. She would have a hard time, you know, pretending to like Joff. She would have a hard time using words to save people. She's not super skilled with words. So Arya has to pretend to be someone else while Sansa has to is is sort of doing the same thing but she has to be pretend to be someone else while pretending to be herself if that makes any sense she has to be Sansa but she can't be the real Sansa she has to be this version of Sansa that Joff wants her to be that Cersei wants her to be that something that she used to want to be herself she used to like the idea of being these things but now it's torture it's torment and well It's all very well expressed, her conundrum and what she has to do here at the end of the chapter. Quote, Is it grief for your lord father that makes you so sad? My father was a traitor, Sansa said at once, and my brother and lady mother are traitors as well. That reflex she had learned quickly. I am loyal to my beloved Joffrey. No doubt, as loyal as a deer surrounded by wolves. Lions, she whispered without thinking. She glanced about nervously, but there was no one close enough to hear. So that's, yeah, that's really well said. It explains it perfectly. She has to behave a certain way because she's basically a deer surrounded by lions or a wolf surrounded by lions in this case. And though this is obvious to Tyrion, Joff is not very bright, uh, meaning all this stuff, meaning that that Sansa is, uh, you know, a deer surrounded by lions. Joff doesn't really grasp the difference between forced obedience and willing loyalty. He kind of just thinks it's all one thing. He's just naive and kind of dumb. And yeah, that's a key tier too, though. Notice the wording. Lions, even she says it, not stags. The stags are not the problem, even though Joff is supposed to be a Baratheon. Sansa isn't aware of the incest just yet. Uh, She doesn't really even think about it. So interesting. It just shows you even more how the Lannisters are above the rules. You still have Jamie far away. You know, Jamie was leading armies and, and being listed as the heir to Casterly Rock and behaving like a Lannister, calling himself a Lannister, not dressing like a Kingsguard. Well, along those lines, Nina had a great catch. Tommen, who's really cute, right? He's a he's he, especially in this chapter, he yells Casterly Rock as he's charging the straw man. And well. It's the same thing. He should be yelling, ours is the fury or storm's end or something. But that's his mother's influence. Cersei has her claws in Tommen. And, well, he is all Lannister. So it kind of makes sense in a scene, in a way. But it's it just goes to show how much the Lannisters are taking over. 
Now, adding to all this, just to sh- just showing how much the Baratheons have been pushed aside and forgotten, when Tyrion offers Joff condolences for his, lof- his loss, Joff doesn't even know who Tyrion's talking about. <laughs> They're so very detached from their father-slash-non-father. But one of my favorite lines of the entire series, not just this chapter, not just this book, I mean the entire series, comes right here. Quote, But I want to ride. I don't care what you want. Mother said I could ride. She said, Princess Marcella agreed. Mother said, mocked the king, don't be childish. We're children, Marcella declared haughtily. We're supposed to be childish. The hound laughed. She has you there. Joffrey was beaten. Yes, Joffrey was beaten. Just I love that that George adds that line. That Joffrey was beaten. <laughs> we're children. We're supposed to be childish. I love that. That is a good burn. Good enough that even the hound points it out, and he knows a thing or two about good burns. Oh, ayo. And speaking of being childish, Joff complains that his siblings are being childish, but here he is demanding to know what people are getting him for his name day, just like he did to Sansa at the end of A Game of Thrones when they were browsing heads. Like, she's sitting there under her father's head, and he's like, what are you getting me for my name day? This kid, I swear. Speaking of burns, too, though, the comet, of course, comes up right away. We... You know, Rache, I read the opening line to this chapter and the comments mentioned right there. And Sansa says she hears the servants calling it the dragon's tail. There's a lot of talk about how the comet is dragony, which, of course, makes sense given the dragons were just born. Now, Aris Okart, I want to talk about him a little extra here, more than you might have expected. He says it burns for Joffrey, which is kind of funny because he sounds even more like a little bird than she ever has. Like, it's Joffrey's comet. Yeah, come on. <laughs> that's, just, that's so silly. But he goes along with that notion, just like he goes along with beating Sansa, although he seems to have resisted beating Sansa more than he may have resisted the idea that this comet was uh, is for Joffrey. So if anyone had any thought left that the Kingsguard were noble, if you hadn't shoved that notion aside, it should be done by this chapter. Uh, I think it should have been gone already, but, it, but this should put it to rest if it was still alive. Sansa thinks that, uh, that Aris is the least brutal of the White Knights, but he barely uh, argues about beating Sansa and doesn't really try to refuse. He just kind of hits her less hard. Now, Arya later thinks, I mean, sorry, not Arya, Aris later thinks in his one feast chapter, quote, It's still shame to Sir Aris to remember all the times he'd struck that poor Stark girl at the boy's command. So he was thankful to the gods for sending him to Dorne, though it was Tyrion, really, who sent him to Dorne and away from that duty which is really saying something because he's an Oakheart born and bred to hate the Dornish. And also in his one chapter, he thinks, quote, Dorn is no fit place for any Oakheart. Yeah, he still prayed to the gods for being sent there because it meant not having to beat Sans anymore. So it goes to show that he was very conflicted, but he went along with it because, well, that's he would be executed or something if he doesn't. Although maybe not, right? Because... Sandor didn't, but let's talk about that later. We're still talking about Aris and Ariane Martell here, who says here, quote, It is not our love that has dishonored you. It is the monsters you have served and the brutes you've called your brothers. So, yeah, she's right on point. It's hard to argue with that. Beating a girl is brutal, full stop. There's no no way around that. That's, That's being in the service of a monster and brutes like his brothers who did it without arguing. Real quick. Do you think Ari's poured his heart out to Ariane about what had happened? Or do you think uh, 
it's just a statement on them watching all that goes on at court and gossip spreading about our mm. Sansa just being beaten. Good question. Do people just know, like, yeah, they, they beat the Stark girl. That's a good question. He might be too ashamed to admit it, but given that he is sleeping with her and he's, you know, never yeah. slept with anybody, yeah, and, you know, the whole concept talk. of pillow yeah, talk and all that, he may talk, have, yeah. yeah. If it weren't for the fact they were sleeping together, I'd say he wouldn't have admitted it, but there's definitely a chance. So that's a good point. That's a very good point. Good catch, Shay. Um, interestingly, too, here, though, uh, just to make things a little more complicated, the, the other knight who doesn't beat her at all, well, the, the person who doesn't beat her at all is the one who isn't a knight, Sandor. And, of course, there's Jamie too. He is a knight, as Stannis would make sure to remind us. And he's the one that the realm thinks is the worst knight of them all because he's the Kingslayer. And, well, I wouldn't say he's deserving of praise, especially not at this point in the story. Jamie hasn't done a lot of good things to this point. I don't think Jamie would have beaten Sansa. I think he would have refused that too, just like uh, Sandor seems to have somehow. But I do think it's fair to still call him brutal, as as uh, Arianne does. So Arianne is completely right, and the way Arianne manipulates Aris is a great parallel to what Sansa does with Joffrey here. Some of the factors are in reverse, but there's a lot of parallels. Like Aris is the one, like Sansa, in that he's in Dorne and Dorne is hostile to Oakharts, while Sansa is in the place hostile to Starks. Sansa isn't able to manipulate Joffrey as much as Arianne can manipulate Aries because, well, they're sleeping together. But we know that Sansa has the beauty and talent to do that sort of thing. She can, meaning, uh, she can make men do what she wants them to, or at least a lot of men. She's got that, you know, probably coming. Fast forwarding a few years to where we are now, I could see Sansa doing that in The Winds of Winter. But right now, She's too young for that. And uh, I mean, Ariane is kind of like a glimpse into uh, not Sansa's future, but parts of Sansa's future or, or what could be part of Sansa's future. And of course, Ariane wants to rule. At this point in the story, Santa has had plenty of thoughts about being queen. She's set that goal aside for now, but there's plenty of reasons to think it could return, either queen in the north or there's other possibilities. But just showing that there's a lot of parallels for Sansa and Ariane here. Ariane also outdoes Aris. <laughs> She's better at talking than he is, just like Sansa is better at talking than Joffrey. Just, just kind of run circles around him verbally. Uh, with Ariane and Aris, it's, it's, it's worse, meaning Ar- Ariane is, can talk even more circles around him because Aris has all this shame, where Joffrey, well, shame doesn't really work on Joffrey. <laughs> Uh, so when Arianne brings up, you know, Robert and, and Joffrey and these, the brutal Kingsguard he's surround, you know, it makes Ares feel shameful. Whereas Sansa doesn't have that in her uh, arsenal, but she does show cleverness instead. She misdirects Joffrey on Dantos, soothing his ego and praising her own idea, but making him think it was his idea. Saying, oh, you're so smart. He is a fool. That's exactly what he is really well done and he falls for it completely and and Tyrion comes in and does the same thing just plays with Joff kind of guides him by the nose and and mocks him to his face without him kind of realizing he's being mocked which brings up another parallel also a feast for crows in a sense because that's Victorian Joff reminds me a bit of Victorian he's always talking about who he wants to fight and just like Victorian does though in Victorian's case he you know is, is might actually win but uh, more, more in common that two have is just 
being kind of dumb, not getting jokes that are aimed right at them. You know, Vitarian doesn't trust mockery. He doesn't trust jokes because you can't tell when it's aimed at him. Joffrey seems pretty similar in that regard. He's too dim to know whether the joke is aimed at him or not. And uh, example comes right here. Tyrion openly questions the story that Robert was killed by a boar. And to cap this off, Tyrion will flat out ask Cersei how she killed Robert. He's like, how did you kill Robert in the next chapter in our arc here, which is Tyrion 1? Speaking of dead kings, this line really stands out on a reread here. Quote, If only Tommen were the elder instead of Joffrey, Sansa thought. I wouldn't mind marrying Tommen. Now, I don't think Sansa's going to marry Tommen. We mentioned possibilities for Sansa to marry after, uh, after Joffrey. You know, there's, there's Harry the heir, of course. But uh, still, he's, she's not the only one who brings this concept up. Obviously, Olena <laughs> is thinking about it later, if not already. But before that, in Tyrion 9, in this book, Bronn says, Ever think how easy life would be if the other one had been born first? He thrust his fingers inside the capon and tore off a handful of breast. The weepy one, Tommen. Seems like he'd do whatever he was told, as, as good king should. Hmm, yeah. The chapter ends with Sansa thinking how Tyrion speaks gently to her, which he will also do when they're married. But yeah, I wouldn't call it foreshadowing um, for their marriage, but it seems likely George knew Sansa and Tyrion would be married at some point, at least meaning by this point, he knew they'd be married at some point, but maybe not. Regardless, Sansa's not having it. She's like, well, he's speaking nicely to me, but you know, other people spoke nicely to her and it was all a lie. It was all, you know, a charade. So not only is he a Lannister, but the people he's with are a bit suspect. And I really like that. I really like seeing Characters we're already kind of familiar with through the eyes of characters who aren't familiar with them. For example, here she is seeing Bronn and Timot for the first time arriving with Tyrion. Quote, Two of his men followed close behind him, a black-haired, black-eyed sellsword who moved like a stalking cat and a gaunt youth with an empty socket where one eye should have been. Oof, yeah. So it isn't just Dantos here uh, where she diffuses a situation that's about to get violent. When she notices Joff getting that, I'm not sure if I'm being mocked face, thanks to Tyrion, who is kind of mocking her, or him rather, she says to herself for the first time, quote, What was it that Septim Mordain used to tell her? A lady's armor is courtesy. That was it. She donned her armor and said, I'm sorry, my lady, my lady mother took you captive, my lord. That's the first time she thinks of a lady's armor as courtesy. Very cool. So that's uh, kind of casting off that bit of who Sansa is and uh, or starting off that bit of who Sansa is, the kicking off uh, what she's going to be for a while. So, I, you know, this is one of those chapters that seemed maybe like it didn't have a lot going on uh, when I read it the first time so many years ago. But you can see that it ties into a lot and it shows a lot and it's... Uh, Got a lot of depth to it. And what's interesting, too, is that when Santa's thinking about a lady's armor, a lady's armor is courtesy, she's, she thinks that immediately after, if she's wondering if Tyrion is mocking her, he's not. But she's, you know, not put off by it. She's just more concerned with whether Joff is offended. Because when Joff gets offended well, it's it's a problem for her because it's self-preservation. Angry Joffrey is more likely to have her beaten. So she wants to keep him happy. 
And it's actually quite similar to how she has to manage Robert Aaron later, who also gets upset very easily. She constantly has to, you know, kind of trick him or manipulate him into not getting upset, into not having a temper tantrum. And so managing Joffrey is a bit of a parallel to that. We even see uh, this a few lines later. We even see an example when Tyrion is talking about the war. Quote, Your brother Jamie keeps losing battles. He gave Sansa an angry look as if it were her fault. Right, so Joffrey is the one who says that. Tyrion's talking about the war, and Joffrey responds saying that. So it's in Sansa's best interest to keep Joffrey happy, which is such a horrible thing to have to do when you absolutely loathe, like bloody murder revenge loathe this person. But you have to pretend to keep him, you have to pretend you care about him, and you have to actually keep him happy, or else he's going to make your life even more miserable. That's what we think about Sean all the time. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> it's so bad that Sansa actually prefers to have Cersei around. Like, let that sink in. She prefers Cersei around because as much as she hates the queen, she hates she hates Joffrey even more. And Joffrey actually is kept in line by Cersei. Whew. So you can see where some of her resolve comes from, though. Uh, what The thing that's driving her, the thing that's that giving her the energy to maintain this charade, to keep from blowing her cool, to keep from losing her composure is, well, right here. Quote. Once she had loved Prince Joffrey with all her heart and admired and trusted his mother, the queen. They had repaid that love and trust with her father's head. Sansa would never make that mistake again. So that's that's just really powerful determination there. And you can see where she's getting that strength from. Nina suggests comparing Sansa's bravery for Dantos to Lyanna saving Howland Reed. I like that. That makes that's a good fit. And it's it just the concept that doing the right thing no matter the danger. It's really brave. I mean, it's easy to look at this and say, yeah, that was brave of Sansa to do. But it's I think it's even braver than it looks because it's not self-preservation. This isn't something that was pissing Joffrey off. This isn't mockery of Joffrey. This is just, well, it's, it would have been the easiest thing in the world for Sansa to just do nothing, let Dantos be killed. It's not like Sansa had any connection to Dantos at all. That's what George is doing here. She's writing a character that, you know, we're, there's no, we don't really have a great reason to like Dantos. It's, the, the point is that Sansa is saving someone she doesn't have to save, someone she has no reason to save. It's just pure selflessness. The opposite of what a little bird would actually do. And Sandor is right there to hear the exchange. And we know he heard it since he backed her play with the whole name day luck lie thing. In that, Sandor again is being more of a knight than Aris or the rest without actually being a knight because he's protecting her. He was backing her up. But also, what's going on in his head there, right? He calls her a little bird a bunch more times. But in this moment, he has to realize what we're realizing here, which is that she didn't have to do that. That was bravery, pure and simple, self, uh, you know, sticking her neck out when she did not have to. It's not self-preservation. It's just being a good person. It's being a lot like her father and her aunt. So speaking of people who are paying attention, someone not in earshot, but keeping an eye on all this, Littlefinger. Of course, he'll just come in to undermine all this self-sacrifice on Santa's part. Her bravery is going to be co-opted by Littlefinger, who will manipulate this and, well, let no good deed go unpunished, I suppose you could say. 
couple thoughts from Joe Buckley. Sir Buckley always coming in with a few extra excellence, excellent points here. Excellence points. That works too. He says that this is the first time we really see Tom and Marcella since Arya got lost in the Red Keep. And the point is hammered home once again that they are both awesome. Yeah. Marcella had that great quote. Tom and is brave and fun. So it's kind of like a really strong contrast. As awful as Joffrey is, as awful as Cersei is. You know, not all the Lannisters are terrible. You got these two innocent kids. Of course, it's the kids that are innocent. And of course, it's these kids that are going to have awful things happen to them. And Tommen, of course, is one of the few characters to earn praise from Sandor. Sandor says, look, the boy has courage. Gotta love that. And there's another really uh, kind of astonishing moment here where a really short quote where Sansa thinks, must Rob and her lady mother die next? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, (laughs) apparently. We also have uh, Giles Rosby makes an appearance here. He already has his cough, which he'll later die of. Oh, hold on. (coughs) Okay. Yeah, there it is. Their actual recording of Giles Rosby's cough. Sounds a little feminine, but, you know, (laughs) there you go. Now we have uh, a moment where Tyrion can't bite his tongue around Joffrey any more than Littlefinger could with Ned. (laughs) Of course, uh, when he says they makes the line about all sorts of people are calling themselves kings these days. So, uh, unfortunately for Tyrion, Joff is a much, much worse person to annoy than Ned. Yeah. Sansa would say, uh, please don't do that. Don't annoy Joffrey, because when he gets annoyed, he beats me or orders his king's card to do it. Uh, tweaking Ned's nose doesn't have that kind of side effect. Uh, so, question and answers and miscellaneous thoughts. Just a few here. Thomas Pappas says, is there a more epic introduction to a character than the one we get for Dantos? I say, no, come at me, bro. <laughs> Maybe epic isn't the word I would choose, but I'm with you for saying, <laughs> for, for uh, pointing this out and uh, highlighting it. A lot of people want to know about how Sandor dodged the beating duty. And I honestly don't know. I think maybe Sandor is just like, nah, I won't do it. Maybe Joffrey kind of has a little more insight than we think. Sandor looks up to Joffrey a bit. I mean, (laughs) other way around. (laughs) Joffrey looks up to Sandor a bit. Even though he talks down to him, I think he respects him as a figure of masculinity because he's a great fighter. And as far as Joff is separated from his own, his his non-father, Robert, that is something Robert had said about him, that he was, you know, a warrior, a masculine, you know, type in that sense. And Sandor has that going for him, uh, but, but no one wants to face him. Everyone's afraid of Sandor. And uh, Joffrey, on some level, maybe has respect for that. Joffrey uh, had three potential father figures, all of whom were great fighters, and Joffrey just sucks so hard. <laughs> yeah. Robert, Sandor, and Jamie. <laughs> That's who you're talking about, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And uh, a couple of people also want us to bring up the Redwine twins who were mentioned here. They're actually in the tournament. And, it, you know, it's their nicknames, Horror and Slobber. Horace and Hobber are their names. Like, who names their kid Hobber? Seriously? <laughs> That's so strange. Hobber. And somehow, and somehow it is not the strangest. You're right. It is not the strangest. Not even, not even close. But uh, those Redwine twins are going to hang around King's Landing for quite a while. They'll be a fixture. Uh, they tried to escape later and are stopped from that. Uh, Varys detects that escape and uh, spills the beans to Tyrion. But they're kept because, well, once Renly declares, you can't have uh, you can't have the Arbor declaring for the Tyrells. So 
by holding them hostage, you keep the red wine fleet from siding with the Tyrells, which is huge. Really, really huge. Okay, folks, that's all the miscellaneous thoughts and questions we have for Sansa 1. So we are into our outro now. Later tonight, well, not even that farther later, like shortly after the end of this episode. In one hour and five minutes. (laughs) Well, we'll see if we're exactly on time. I doubt it. Ashea, our very own many-armed wonderful person. Our many-armed wonder, we're going to call you. You're like a a kraken, a good kraken. Good Kraken out. Yeah, you can say it like we can spell it like crack, like in Ireland. The Kraken. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Christina C-R-A-I-C. will appreciate it. Yeah. That's right. I think I saw Christina in the chat there. Hey, Christina. She was. Hey, yeah. yeah, with Brian. She said, she Rah- oh, yeah. She, she said, Rahala. <laughs> yeah, and she was there to see Brian's victory lap upon <laughs> his pun being a good one. sent to thousands of people. <laughs> So yeah, check out Ashea on Steven Stark's channel. I know that nerd. He just launched a Patreon as well. So if you are uh, feeling generous or supportive, check out his newly launched Patreon and uh, donate what you think is appropriate. For us, well, that is the end of this episode, but we do have next week coming up. We have the names prepared, six episode, uh, chapters to make you think and have fun. Starting off with Tyrion 1, the gang makes Tyrion hand, a.k.a. the one where Varys riddles. Bran 1, do you want to read it? or Sure, yes. Sorry, I was very amused by something in the chat. <laughs> I will, yeah. Okay, Bran 1, the one with the, full, the first wolf dreams, a.k.a. the gang plays Lord of the Crossing. Ooh. Arya 2, the gang meets Jack and Hagar, a.k.a. the one where the gold cloaks want Gendry. John 1, the gang hunts for maps, a.k.a. the one where G.R. compares John to Aemon. Catelyn 1, the one where Rob sends Theon home, a.k.a. the gang gets bad news about the Riverlands. Tyrion 2, the gang sends Slint to the Wall, a.k.a. the one where Varys answers his riddle. So Varys' riddle is both introduced and answered next week. We got two Tyrion chapters, his first and second. We have four more first chapters, Bran... I'm sorry, three more first chapters. Tyrion makes four total. Three more, meaning Bran, John, and Catelyn. And we will have the first chapters of Davos and Theon the week after. So, lots to do. Lots of fun. Very excited to start with Clash of Kings. This is super fun. I'm so glad to be doing Valerie. Or, as as I call it, ACOC. (laughs) ACOC, yes. The funniest of the... Uh, acronyms for any of the five books. And probably it'll stay the funniest, even yeah. when all the books are done. Yes, for sure. So a few people to thank. Thanks to all of our patrons whose support makes all this possible. Thanks to everyone who came live to add to the chat and to catch things that we missed. Thanks to Ashea for wearing so many hats, having so many arms, doing so much at once, running all the technical stuff, managing the chat, while also adding great thoughts to the discussion. Thanks to Sir Buckley, Check out Isle of Faces podcast, Scraps and Scrolls. Thanks to our Facebook groups, our group. There's just the one. (laughs) Thanks to Nina for helping with the timestamps and adding lots of great thoughts to the discussions. Thanks to our people over on Flick. Many of you are regulars over there and your thoughts on the regular help us make this great. Um, I like to shout you guys out on the regular, but I want the shout out to be extra long this time because we're starting a new book. 
So thanks again to all of y'all who participate. Participation is really one of the things that gets me the most excited about all this because I think this is a group effort. I think this is super fun. The point of it all is to, you know, enjoy this together and to go over it together. That's what we're doing. And we're just getting started with the Clash of Kings. We'll be back next week with part two, six more chapters. And until then, Valar reread us.